I'm turning this evening to the letter to the Hebrews, chapter 11 and verse 24. Hebrews, chapter 11, verse 24. By faith, Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. And uh, we're considering the vital turning point of life. And I come to this 11th chapter of Hebrews and the life or a reference here to the life of Moses. Moses is an outstanding historical figure, without doubt. He was uh, an author. He was used by God for the deliverance of the Hebrews, the children of Israel, from slavery in ancient Egypt, where their lot was terrible, cruel bondage we read of. And yet this one man was called by God and used by God to lead them out, and he did that. He was called by God to establish a nation, which he did, with laws which God gave. It was to Moses that God gave the Ten Commandments and all the other laws of ancient Israel and all the provisions for society. He was the one who was to order society and turn a brickyard rabble into the most orderly and uh, peaceful in those days society on earth. Make them cultured and aspiring to all the very best things. Moses, two million of them, a small nation, a large number of people, possibly more. And he accomplished all that. And the remarkable thing is, unlike great leaders usually, personally, he remained completely unspoiled by this. He's described in the word of God in his time as the meekest of all men. He's shown to be the most approachable. Power never went to his head, though under God he possessed it over the people. He went through some very deep waters with an obstinate and a difficult people, and yet uh, he brought them through. An outstanding historical figure. Some people even go so far these days, in these cynical days, as to deny his existence. Would you believe it? And they say there's no, uh, outside the Bible, there's no historical evidence for the existence of a man named Moses at that time. There's no evidence, they say, for Abraham, for any of the patriarchs, for Moses. This is all later myth created in later centuries. And people cling on to these ultra-cynical ideas. It's astonishing that they do. This is the Bible. Moses was the author of the first five books of the Bible. Well, to put it more accurately, 
who was the author of the first book of the Bible because what we have divided into five books was originally one, the book of Moses. He was the author of all that, stretching back centuries before his time, a concise history of the ancient Hebrew people, all their dealings with God, all that ever happened to them. Oh, it's just later myths, they say. And this used to be even more common than now. Down through time, wherever there have been people who chose to be cynical, and in the world of scholarship, cynical scholars, Moses and the existence of these Old Testament heroes have been denied. No such people, no evidence at all. I don't know quite what they want. I suppose they want, when Ur of the Chaldees is excavated, somebody to find a silver cup presented to the young man who won some great city running race. And there inscribed on that cup would be the name of Abraham and later on of Moses or some trinket of that kind. Of course, there aren't such things. That's ridiculous to say, show me a name, show me a definite inscription, show me something. We read these early books of the Bible and we see detailed, even intricate descriptions of the life of the people of those times. In the case of Moses, Egyptian life and culture and ways and customs are described. Methods of warfare, everything is described in detail. Same going back, all the way back to Abraham, who spent his boyhood and grew up in Ur of the Chaldees, doesn't exist. Such a place isn't there, they said. These descriptions are fanciful. We know for certain it wouldn't have been anything like the Bible describes it as. And then you get to the 1860s and the whole world of archaeology begins to open up and the sands begin to yield up their treasures and places get excavated. Of the Chaldees wasn't properly discovered and excavated until relatively recently. In the early 1900s, Sir Leonard Woolley and other archaeologists. And what did they find which shook many people in the historical and archaeological worlds that the descriptions that you find in the first books of the Bible were absolutely accurate descriptions of Egyptian life and earlier on of the life and culture of Ur of the Chaldees, so for so long regarded by cynics as nonsense conjured up centuries later. And these were found to be accurate descriptions and the artifacts and the buildings that were excavated and the evidence of local culture showed those biblical descriptions to be contemporary and accurate and real. This is the Bible we are dealing with. It is an historical record and an accurate historical record. 
And we could go much further. You look at the first five books of Moses. I, I was shown by somebody an article a few years ago in The Guardian where a journalist was, as they often do, having a go at the historicity of the Bible and the great personalities of the early years of the Old Testament. And he was bringing out all these usual things. And it was so pickled, he didn't know what he was talking about. His journalist may have been an expert in some field or other, but he certainly knew nothing about the Bible. This is the Bible. This book is astonishing. Start to examine the book of Genesis, say, and then the book of Exodus, and look at what it's talking about, and look at its description of God, and the attributes of God, and the doctrines of God, and the way in which God saves souls, and the way in which he draws people to himself, and the problem of sin, and how God solves it, and how atonement is the only solution for sin, to secure its forgiveness. And all these theological matters, they are intricate, they are profound, they are to be deeply respected, and they are consistent with everything you find in the rest of the Bible. Centuries later, you find the Apostle Paul writing his letter to the Romans from another point of view, exactly the same doctrines, the same profound observations, the same details. These books were not put together by human ingenuity. These books were not filled with inventions of the human mind that change over centuries. These are profound things that are consistent throughout. This is the Bible. When it talks about certain people and certain events, it's the same with names, something which interests me profoundly, and I've seen two or three excellent articles on this kind of subject. The Old Testament names, I'll put it just in a sentence or two. You know, people are named throughout the early books of the Old Testament. Cities are named. Groups are named. Now, years later, a few centuries later, various great and famous libraries and librarians and historians began to reassemble the past. And they said... Those spellings in the scriptures in the Old Testament are all wrong. They're ridiculous spellings. And so from about the year 1400, 1500 AD, all the spellings of ancient place names took on a new form. The experts knew what was right. But then once again, when the era of archaeological exploration came about and discovery, it was found that all the old Bible names were right. And the word of scholarship was quite wrong. These are contemporary records. They are accurate and true. It's no good looking for a silver cup with a name on it. You've got far greater evidence for the historical accuracy and integrity of the Bible. Well, I could talk all night about this and be well off the point, but I just want to tell you, Moses was one of the greatest 
historical figures ever with his accomplishments and unspoiled. And there was a time in his life when he had a tremendous decision to make. And he made it in favour of the living God. And it changed his life radically in many ways. And there were lessons in it for us in every age. I want to talk for a few minutes about that. So I go back to the text in Hebrews 11 and down here in verse 24. By faith, it's a great chapter on faith. By faith, Moses, when he was come to years, it doesn't mean quite what may be suggested to our minds, like 21 or something of that kind. It simply means when he was come to the years that God had in mind, that God had determined, when he was come to the right time for God to move, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. But that's how he was brought up. You know the story of Moses. I won't remind you of that. And how he was found by Pharaoh's daughter and how he was brought up in the royal household of the emperor, the pharaoh of Egypt at that time? Well, there was a time when he left that household and he forsook all that. And this is what this passage is about. By faith, Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. That means, friends, he may very well have been the next Pharaoh. The son of Pharaoh's daughter. That's loaded with sense. He was a prince of Egypt. He would have been a general. He possibly would have been versed in construction. Princes had to play their part in the construction of great monuments, the design and layout and so on. Maybe he was something of an architect, we're not told this. But whatever was his gift, he had the liberty to exercise it. He had royal status, he had luxury, he had wealth, and he had, in all likelihood, a succession to be the head of the Egyptian empire. He refused, however, to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. We're told elsewhere how it happened in the book of Exodus and so on. He, he realized that ethnically he was an Israelite. He was a Hebrew. And no doubt he did his research. He was versed in all the learning of the Egyptians. He knew all the subjects they taught, all the things they were expert in, but he doubtless researched his own lineage, his own background. I believe he must have known the scriptures of the Hebrews. He had acquired them and asked after them. He felt a connection and he needed to exercise that connection. 
we're told in the Exodus record. So here is Moses looking back. Now in Egypt, that mighty empire, he was versed in the religion of Egypt. It was polytheistic. There were numerous gods. Gods in the heavens, gods on earth, in the skies that is. The sun was a god. The moon was a god. Cats were gods. All kinds of creatures were gods. Scarabs, of course, everywhere were gods. And you worshipped all these gods. But what was worship? It wasn't adoration for the Egyptians in those days, in ancient times. It was placating the gods. All these gods that control everything, from love to weather to war to trees to flowers, you need them to be on your side to give you good fortune. And how do you do that? Well, you have various formulas for worship and you feed them with items of food and you honour them and you make expensive monuments and idols and statues to them and you live in a world of multiple superstitions trying to calm down your gods because your gods, numerous as they are, can be very wicked gods and vindictive gods and cruel gods and they can at any moment do you down in some terrible way. So you want to keep them happy. You're so superstitious. Every minute of every day, you're doing something to placate some god. And in the midst of all that, Moses read something that really caught his mind and heart. There is one true living God. Only one. And he isn't like us. He is in some ways but not in moral ways. He is perfect. He is wonderful. He is all-knowing. He is eternal. He is unchanging. He has a vast mind and intelligence. He plans for everyone. He has eternity planned. He knows exactly how long the world will last. He puts nations down in judgment sometimes, to show us what he'll do at the end of time to wickedness. But he's a merciful God and a kind God who forgives and changes lives and hears and answers prayer and is with us and he learns about the one true and living God. Why, there's a thousand miles and more between them. Who would choose polytheism? The gods of frogs and cats and unmentionable things in favour of the one true and living God who made all things to whom we must one day give account. And Moses read of him hungrily, thirstily and learned of him. And he learned about the need for reconciliation with God. And he learned about sin personal sin that cuts us off from God and brings us under judgment and he learned how God is ready to forgive but even God cannot easily forgive he must find a way to remove the guilt of sin 
and he has done so. He will send a saviour who will take away sin, a Messiah who will one day come. And that's what Moses read. That's what he heard about. That's what he learned of. How sin could be taken away and this mighty God in the heavens could be personally known to me. And God, even when he was a youngster, put it into his heart to associate with his country people, with the Israelites, the Hebrews. And he seemed to know from an early age that he would somehow be the one who would lead them out of bondage, out of slavery, so that one day they could be a nation and Messiah would be born into that nation. He knew that. And so he associated with his country folk. And he saw, you know the history, I'm sure, it's in the back of your mind, how Moses witnessed the cruelty meted out to one of his fellow Hebrews. And he stepped in, dressed in all his court refinery, although he may have gone among the Hebrews in some kind of simpler dress and disguise, but they knew who he was. And when they saw him, there was a, a battle and an accidental death. And they threatened him. They didn't want this troublemaker from court. What's he doing? And they opposed him. And Moses would have been confused as a young man. They don't understand. I can rescue them. I can deliver them. But unfortunately, it became known to Pharaoh and this was, in the laws of that time, an unforgivable offence. And Moses, um, Pharaoh pronounced against him. And he had to withdraw. In the Old Testament, our translation uses a word which is perhaps not the ideal word. It says, Moses fled. The Hebrew actually means he withdrew, he went. It's an elastic word. It could mean he ran for his life, but it could just as easily and simply mean he withdrew from court life and his royal status. And here, in this text before us tonight, Hebrews chapter 11, verses 24 and so on, we read that it wasn't out of fear. He knew what he was doing. And this is what I want us to think about. By faith, Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He identified with the Hebrews, choosing rather. It was his choice. He didn't run out of fear. Choosing rather. He knew what would happen, the risks he was running choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. And listen to this, esteeming the reproach of Christ, the scorn that would come to him on account of his belief in a coming Messiah to save people from sin. 
esteeming the reproach of Christ who would one day come, Messiah, greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he had respect unto the recompense of the reward eternally. Listen, by faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king. He withdrew. He didn't flee for his life. He knew what he was doing. For he endured as seeing him, Christ, who, hadn't, who wouldn't come for centuries. But he knew he would come. And it was as though he saw him. Though he is invisible. What a thing. When it came into the heart of Moses to identify with, his, with the Hebrews, with the Israelites, I would have thought there would be a great struggle in his mind. Don't you think? The record doesn't tell us this, but I think it's inevitable. There was a mighty struggle. It would be foolish to upset Pharaoh. It would be foolish of me to go out and identify with my countrymen and then trouble to result, leading to my being held to be a criminal in the eyes of Pharaoh. That would be foolish. I'm possibly his heir, his successor. I am in a position of power and authority. I am esteemed. This is the greatest of the empires at that time. We're going back between 14, 1500 years before Christ. Why, if I stay as a prince of Egypt and possibly Pharaoh, I'll be able to do much good. I'll be able to influence Pharaoh even if he has a long life. To go easy on the Israelites. To relieve their suffering. To establish them in a place of their own. To stop the cruelty. I shall be able to extend to them schemes for their education and elevation and social improvement. I shall be able to do all sorts of things. They would be powerful arguments, surely, to a young man. Wouldn't it be far better for me to stay? If I do this thing and I identify with the Hebrews and there is great trouble and I'm thrown out, I shall be destitute. I shall belong to nobody. I'll have to go and find some Israelites somewhere else and dwell with them. Maybe as a shepherd, as a keeper of animals and labourer. What can I do then? And I shall lose the comforts and the wealth and the ability to indulge my gifts and powers with great buildings or whatever. This doesn't make any sense. But he realised that if he stayed in court, it would be one compromise after another. 
Of course, there'll be some disadvantages of if I stay. If I stay, I will have to give recognition and some participation in the religion of Egypt. The cats and the frogs and the sun and the moon. I can't disown it. I can't oppose it. I'm going to have to compromise. And then there are other things I shall lose the capacity to do. And then I look at the other side of the coin. I'm going to suffer reproach. I'm going to be one of those Hebrews. One of those nothing nation, nothing people, only fit to be slaves and discounted and walk about in rags. But by faith, he gave up the compromise, the royal court, the fineries, the supposed opportunities. By faith, he was prepared to take the scorn and to go out to who knows what sort of uh, humiliation or deprivation. How did he do it? Because he saw him who was invisible. Not literally. He saw no vision of Christ. He did see later on the burning bush years later, but not at the time he left Pharaoh's court. He saw no literal Christ, but he knew he was coming. What he learned of the true faith and the true God, he believed. This is Egypt. This is a place of cruelty. This is a place of lovelessness. This is a place of every man for himself. This is a place of untold misery. This is a place of belief in superstitions and frogs and cats and crazy and absurd and awful things. He believed in the one true God and he knew a Messiah was coming who would do away with sin and therefore he could trust him and he could go to God in his heart and say, Lord, forgive me my sin. And God would deal with him and give him a new life and strength and be his protector and his defender and lead him from day to day. He believed that. He knew that. And so because he saw these things and trusted God, he went. Now this has parallels for us. What's your life? What's its purpose? What do you believe in? Nothing. No God. You don't know him. You've never found him. You haven't proved him. You don't know much about him. You have to get all your satisfaction from the here and now, from the present, from possessions, from flattery, from what people think of you, from the clothes you wear, the satisfaction you get, the status you can earn as you pass exams or acquire this or that. 
Here we are scratching for a living, for satisfaction, for happiness, from all these material things. And there's a God in heaven who will be our God and our friend and our guide, even unto death and then forever in eternal bliss. And we haven't even considered him. We need to come to him for forgiveness and for life. I believe when Moses trusted God, he had help. He had to trust him, but he had help. And we have help today. Theologically, we often call it this. There is something called irresistible grace. God enabled him to trust him. God helped him mightily. He worked in his heart. He showed him the shallowness and the horrors of Egypt. He showed him that just a short while taking scorn and humiliation and difficulty would lead to great fruitfulness for God and eternal glory. He showed him that. And he saw it was far greater riches. I think a similar thing happened in my life. When I first heard of really understandingly that God saves souls, forgives sin, gives you a new life, draws you to himself, blesses you and guides you, I resisted it. Like most people, I made every excuse. I wouldn't listen. I wouldn't respond. What made the difference? Oh, it was the Lord. It was this mysterious, irresistible grace, the attraction of the gospel and of new life from God and of walking with him and being able to pray and understanding the purpose of life and being in his hands became so much more compelling and attractive than a life for this vain passing world that I went forward and believed in him. But when I look back, I say, Like Moses, I chose. The word chose is in the text. He chose. But I realize I chose because of the kindness of God drawing us on. May God in his mighty grace and kindness draw you to himself and work in your heart so that you feel the only way forward is to give yourself to him. Now listen for a moment. You do not have to give up the royal court. You're not in a royal court. You do not have to give up the riches like Moses had. You probably don't have riches. You do not have to give up all his opportunities and status and things. All you have to give up, 
or be ready to give up is your sin and yourself. All you have to do is to come to God and to say, Lord, I will give up my sin and my sinful desires and my sinful tastes. Only I can't do it, Lord. I cannot throw these things off. Lord, deliver me. Help me. Forgive me. And bring me out of them. And he does. I give myself to thee. You have to be like the ex-slave trader John Newton of old. When he came to the Lord, and he looked back on that experience, Saviour, if of Zion's city I through grace a member am, let the world deride or pity, I will glory in thy name. Fading is the worldling's pleasure, all his boasted pomp and show, solid joys and lasting treasure, none. But Zion's children know. That's the truth. You come to God, he draws you to himself. Give him your life, repent of your sin, ask for mercy and new life, for reconciliation. And you become a child of God and you will know him. Nothing like the decision that Moses had to take and yet, It's big to us. There's a similarity. There's a battle within. I draw back. And God in his mercy draws me forward. May that be your experience. Come to him. Give yourself to him. And you will be his now and forever. Let's pray together. O God, our gracious Heavenly Father, help us all. Come in that irresistible grace by the power of the Spirit and draw us to Christ. Help us to see him and his loving kindness and the price he's paid to bring about salvation from sin, to secure our forgiveness. Lord, help us all and bless us now. We ask it in his name, for his sake. Amen.